I wonder if you can think of any awkward moments that you have encountered around the issue of the giving or receiving of gifts. Uh, this can be a delicate topic. Sometimes even within families, different people can have different takes on the whole matter of giving and receiving gifts. And it can sometimes feel a little bit tricky. Uh, maybe you have given a gift to someone and it seems that you somehow got the wrong thing. You can sort of tell from their reaction as it comes. So, so I did have to, I, I, I've tried to get good gifts for Lindsay on the whole over our 20 years of marriage. Um, but I did want once uh, buy her an apron uh, for a gift, and that didn't go down too well, to be honest with you. But to be fair, it was a really snazzy, awesome, cool apron. It wasn't just any apron, but uh, yeah, she wasn't that excited about that gift, I don't think. Or maybe you have received a gift that just wasn't quite your cup of tea, and you feel a bit like this guy here on the screen just now, this little dude who uh, you, maybe you have to make a little face like him, when you receive a gift that you don't like and you have to act like you're super excited and super pleased with what you've just received and that awkward smile comes across your face, thanks. Or maybe someone has given you a wonderful gift and you begin to feel awkward because you've not given something in return. Or, or maybe you have given something, but your present feels woefully inadequate compared to the incredible gift that you have received. Now, these are, these are not really things that we should be worrying about. Perhaps some of you, maybe some of you are so sanctified that you've never had any of these concerns at all. Um, but I, I suspect at least most of us have had at least one awkward or delicate moment with the giving or receiving of gifts. It's just one of life's little joys, isn't it? Here's the main point of today's message. It's to do with receiving a gift. Don't always tell you what the main point is up front, but I'm going to tell you this time. The main point is this. Christians should be experts at receiving gifts. <laughs> Christians should be experts at receiving gifts. And I wonder how that lands on you. Some of you are thinking, oh dear, he's finally lost it. Call the heresy police. This is a problem. Or, or maybe others of you are thinking, finally, a sermon I can get on board with. This sounds good. I want to hear more. Well, you see, sometimes we don't like to have to receive it can feel embarrassing to be in a position of receiving goodness, blessing from someone. Or even sometimes, horribly, if someone navigates that particular moment in a cruel way or in a patronizing way, it can actually sometimes feel demeaning the way that someone might come at you and, and you feel like, oh, what's, what's going on here? can be difficult. I remember speaking to one uh, dear friend who, along with his wife, had a, an incredible gift of generosity. Um, both of them had, at that point in their lives, quite large incomes, so they delighted to give money away. And they, they would often try and give unique gifts to, to meet specific needs that people had. And they'd often try and do it anonymously. And we'd, we'd got to know this couple so well and we'd been able to, to see that this had been the case. And then their circumstances changed in life. And for a season, uh, they were no longer really in the position of being able to give much, but they had to, for a while, receive much. They were in that place of having to receive of others generosity. And uh, this brother shared with me how difficult that often felt 
to receive, to be blessed by others without being able to reciprocate, without being able to balance it up, so to speak. It shared how that was a humbling thing. And actually, you know, how God had used that to, to speak to them a lot about what did it mean to come with that posture of, of receiving from others and from God. It's not always easy to receive. We, we don't like, if we're honest, we don't like to feel beholden to anyone. If we receive a gift, we can feel like, sometimes we can feel like we owe something, that we need to somehow balance things out. I remember uh, trying to arrange a time to connect with a, a couple of friends and saying to them, oh no, no, I think it's our turn to have you guys over. And they, this person said to me with a cheeky smile on their face, they said, that's not a very Christian thing to say, is it? <laughs> and, you know, what were they saying in that response? They were saying that Christian love and generosity and hospitality doesn't exist to balance the scales. R rather than receiving their love and hospitality uh, and being blessed in that as an end in itself, they were flagging that there was a sense in which I'd seen that to be one part of a transaction that I somehow needed to, you know, balance out, that it had left me with some sort of debt. And, and they were flagging to me that if that's the way I was thinking of their invitation to come round from dinner, then I had missed the point of what it was all about in the first place. Christians are those who receive. You cannot be a Christian without humbly accepting a gift so amazing that you'll never, ever pay it back. This is what we see in today's passage, pointed to at least in today's passage. The most remarkable act and display of humble service and generosity that invites us to come to Jesus today and to receive gratefully. So in John chapter 13, here Jesus is, is not far from the cross. This is the night before he will be crucified. So let's read verse 1 again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it's flagging that Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead of him. And he did not give up in this moment. And, and he used this night in a very particular way. He didn't use it as an opportunity to, to scold them or to highlight in this moment their, their sinfulness or to call attention to this horrible cosmic injustice that was about to occur at the cross. It says that, that, that when he had, the hour had come for him to depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The old NIV translation used to say he now showed them the full extent of his love. If it means he loved them to the uttermost or whether it means he loved them temporally to the end, the point is this. Jesus in these closing hours of his life is wanting to highlight his great love for them. And the context that we're given in these verses just underlines this. From verse 2 to verse 4, this is what we read. It says in verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, this is really interesting the way John writes it because if you, if you read it again, look at it there, verse 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3 almost sort of read as incidental. The main point of the narrative here is that after supper, sorry, during supper, Jesus rose. But there's all this information that we get in the meantime in verses 2 and 3. First of all, in verse 2, we highlight that the, the context is that there's, there's evil Horrible, grave evil swirling around this group. Dishonesty and deception are in the air. Betrayal is coming and Jesus knows it well. And then we get another bit of context in verse 3 and it just underlines here who Jesus is. The Father had given all things. Three things we learn here in verse 3. The Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And it's like John wants us to remember. Remember who this Jesus is. Don't forget what I said at the start of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's reminded, this is who we're talking about here. If you just focused on what was about to happen, you might miss out on the wonderful reality of who this person is. And these three things that he communicates, that Father had given all things into his hand, that, that he'd come from God and was going back to God. Now, what's the point of this context? Well, it's just, I think, to underline for us the wonder of the majesty of Jesus. To underline the incredible reality of who he is. Is there any greater wealth than Jesus who came from God, who had been given all things, all authority into his hands? Is there any greater power than this? Is there any greater honor than this? That he'd come from God and was returning to God. Is there any greater mission than this? John's just lifting our eyes to see the giver of life. Lifting us Lifting our, our attention away from just what is about to happen so that we know who this is who's about to do this thing. So it was in that context, showing us the, the great love that he had for us, the, the betrayal that was about to happen, the wonder of who this Jesus is. It was in that context that it says he rose from supper. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He comes to his followers and they already had a great um, varied understanding of who Jesus was. They, they knew that he was a teacher. They knew that he was a master. They had accepted various degrees of revelation as to who this Jesus was. But Jesus knew they needed to still see more. He needed, they needed to truly see the heart of God towards his people. So Jesus adopts this lowly posture and serves. Doing one of the filthy jobs, one of the lowly jobs, one of the dirty jobs. Meeting a very practical need of the people in the room that day, getting dirt and dust out from in between their toes, helping them feel fresh 
and clean so they can enjoy their evening. And it's interesting here in John chapter 13, how much detail John goes into in this moment. He could have easily just said, Jesus washed his disciples' feet and then moved on to some teaching or to, to whatever was about to happen next. But that's not what John does. Now, you've heard me say a number of times, you know, you sometimes read amazing passages of Scripture and you go, don't you just wish there was a bit more detail there? Wouldn't you love to know how this landed? How did this unfold? Well, we get it here. And we need to ask, well, what's the purpose of that then? Let's not ignore the fact that we get this detail. We get this intro verse in verse 1 that this is all about Jesus' love. We get these context verses in verses 2 and 3. The story's about to turn. Look how amazing this Jesus is. And then even in verses 4 and 5, there's, there's various bits of detail we get that Jesus rose, that he took off his outer clothes, he took a towel, he tied the towel around his waist. He got a basin, clearly. He went and poured water into the basin. And then on it goes. And why? Why are we getting all this detail here? Well, I just wonder, is this not the account of a stunned onlooker? Someone who can't believe what is going on and wants other people to feel that same sense of awe and wonder. John, I believe, wants his readers to experience the same sense of, what? What is happening here? And of course, the point for us, when we know the whole story of Scripture, the whole story of this creator God revealed to us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, the point is not actually that difficult for us to get our head around. And I think the point John is trying to make to us is to say, a God who washes his followers' feet how can this be? How can it be that Jesus is about to do what it seems he is? And John goes slow and gives us lots of detail because this is amazing. And we can find it hard to get our head around that, right? We read these stories and sometimes they wash over us a little bit, especially if we've heard them lots of times. But, but there are examples from modern day life that we can think of that sort of bring this into stark contrast. And some of this, this, this is an oft-used illustration, but I was grateful that Ian just mentioned what's coming up on Saturday with the coronation of, of King Charles. Because can you imagine the idea of King Charles doing something like this on Saturday? You know, after the moment when Justin Welby puts the crown on his head and the congregation cry out, God save the king, in the midst of this service of incredible religious pageantry, could you imagine if after that, King Charles got up and told Justin Welby or, or someone from the congregation, or even better, someone from outside who would have no place being part of this ceremony on the face of it, took them in and, and sat them down on this special throne, King Edward's chair, made in 1300. I did my research, people, used by every monarch since 1626 with the stone of destiny underneath. And can you imagine if King Charles got up and took off the, let me get this right, the super tunica. Do you know that's what it's called? He has to, he's going to wear this gold-lined white cloth thing. Imagine he took that off, took off the crown, put down the orb and scepter, went back to the vestry in the back of Abbey and found a basin and filled it with water and came out and washed 
the feet. I mean, it just, it just seems ridiculous at best, bizarre, or maybe even wildly inappropriate. We can barely imagine such a thing. What's the point? The point is this is not how honor and power and prestige operates in our world. And it's not just in, in unique moments like that. It's in the world of celebrity. <laughs> There's a ridiculous brouhaha going on on Twitter just now because some celebrities have lost their blue ticks. Now, do you know how important this is, people? A blue tick means that you are verified, which means that if you're Beyonce and you have a blue tick next to your name, you really are Beyonce or you really are Cristiano Ronaldo. You're not one of the impersonators. And Elon Musk has said, from now on, you gotta pay $8 a month if you want the blue tick. And these celebrities are outraged. I suspect they can afford the $8 a month, but they're outraged that they are no longer able to prove that they are who they say they are. <laughs> what a nonsense, right? This sort of tweeting and bleating and upset that has followed is an absolute joke. The point is this, celebrities shouldn't have to pay to get verified. Kings don't humbly serve others right after a coronation. Presidents don't have doors closed on them. Rishi Sunak doesn't need to call for an Uber after PMQs. The CEO doesn't unblock the office toilet. Pop stars don't clean up after the concert, right? You get the idea. And yet here we have Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, washing his disciples' feet. And John wants us to take this in slowly, I think, to come with wonder and amazement. How could it be that any ruler would do something like this, let alone the one and only true God? Isaiah 66 verse 1 says this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And I heard Matt Redman a couple of times have a wonderful line where he say, this is the God for whom the earth is his footstool and yet he stoops low and washes the earth off his disciples' feet. What kind of God is this? The point is not ultimately foot washing. The point is that Jesus shows us here the God who serves, the God who gives, the God who makes clean, the God who stoops low, the God of humility, the servant king. And the question is, how will we respond to this God? Would you respond like Peter? Let's read verse six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter can't believe it. In the original language, the words you and me flow together in the way the sentence reads. So it's, Lord, you of me do wash the feet. You to me with the foot washing here. Can this be? You are going to serve me. And Jesus says, in verse 7, don't worry, Peter, you're going to get it one day. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. But Peter is not having it. And just as Peter often does, I love Peter, Peter dives in with both feet, saying the wrong thing, not thinking it through. And uh, even though Jesus just told him, hey, Peter, one day, one day, you'll understand, Peter responds in verse 8 by saying, 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. (laughs) It's just not really a good idea to speak to Jesus with that sort of tone, right? You shall never wash my feet, not now or ever. And listen to Jesus' response, and this is key. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here's the point. If you don't receive this act of love, you can't know me. The only way you know me is by me coming to you and making you clean. This foot washing is not the main thing. It is a picture of a much deeper cleansing, a much deeper act of miraculous service and love. And Jesus is saying, Peter, if you want to know me, if you want to walk with me, to share in me and my blessing, you got to let me wash your feet. You, you have to understand, Peter, you have nothing to give me apart from your surrender, apart from letting me come to you to serve you. And then your grateful receiving of my service and love. That's what you have to offer me, Peter. As we said at the start, it's not always easy to receive. You lose your power when you're in the place of receiving. You lose your control. You lose any sense of grandeur. You can only come in abandon. You can only come if you're really ready to receive. And and you can't pay this back. There's no balancing out to be done here. You can only but come in wonder. And this is why I love Peter's response in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's getting it. He said, oh, if this is about you coming to me, if this is about me knowing your love, then I'm all in, Jesus. Don't just stop at my feet, please. But all of me, all of me, keep going. Is that your posture today? To come and receive from God. To truly accept God for who he is. To abandon any sense of self-sufficiency. To come and be cleansed by Jesus this morning. I loved the way Ian prayed. I'll be honest, I'm standing there and I'm singing these words. I surrender. I hunger and thirst. And I'm battling this reality. I'm conscious. I don't feel, Jesus, that warmth of love that I've always felt. I feel fearful. I feel confused. I feel distracted. I feel worried. God, I, help me. Help me. Help me surrender. And I love that Ian said, no matter how faltering, no matter how faltering our prayer, do you come with this heart before God today? Say, I, I don't get it all. I don't maybe feel a certain way. But I know, I know the key to me knowing peace with God is not me giving, 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 not me thinking, 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 doing, 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 but to surrender, to receive. That's the invitation before anything else, before anything else. Receive either for the first time today. I pray some of you here might for the first time know that you have surrendered yourself to Jesus. Or again and again and again to surrender to the love of the servant king. And then, just very briefly as we close, then, once we've done that, we can allow that to shape how we view the world. It changes how we understand what true power is. 
It's, we understand that, it's, that we, we've seen what true authority is, what true leadership is. There was no mistake as to who was the leader in that room that day. And, and that changes how we posture ourselves towards different authority sources in our lives when we've seen what true leadership and love looks like. It changes how we strive after acceptance and other things. And secondly, it changes the degree to which we want to mirror the wonderful act of service that Jesus has done. We begin to serve others. That's what verses 12 onwards are about. Let's read some of them. Jesus says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you know, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is saying, follow my example now. Follow my example. Serve others. And, and this is where it starts to make sense to us, right? Because you might have come and you think about this, you know, the, the intro, Christians are supposed to be good at people who are receiving. And, 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 and you would say, Martin, I thought, it was, I thought we were to be all about giving. Well, yes, that is true. But the order is so important. We are to be generous. We are to give love. We are to serve others, but only as an overflow of Jesus' love in us. Not out of obligation or to earn anything or to somehow balance relationships up on this world, but we are to serve others as a mirror. That's what Jesus is saying here. I've done this for you. Now go and do this for others. So yes, be lavish in your generosity this week. Serve others with kindness and humility, but not because you have much, not because you might get much in return, but because you have been loved much and allow the love of Jesus to well up in your heart so that you can't help but with his leading and his power, serve others as Jesus called us to. Will you come today? this week, day by day, and receive of the lovely, humble servant love of Jesus. And will you then mirror that to this world much in need? This world that needs to see what true power and authority is, true glory and splendor. Will you mirror the love of Jesus to this world? Let's pray. I'd like you to, to reflect on this, this picture of this, uh, this meal and this foot washing. I'd like you to imagine that you're in the mix in that moment and Jesus comes round to wash your feet. How will you respond? How will you respond as you see Jesus on the cross before you? Father, we thank you so much for the awesome God that you are revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the servant king. And I pray, Lord, that you would break into my heart, into our hearts today, 
and that you would bring us to that place of abandon and surrender and grateful receiving of your amazing love. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd shape us to reflect that love to this world much in need, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Minister to our hearts that we might minister to others. By your Spirit, we receive from you now again of your goodness. And we worship you and we thank you.